Amen. Amen. Such a great time of worship with you guys this morning. It's fun to hear so many voices singing, isn't it? So good. So good. Well, today um, is a day that you guys have all been waiting for, at least a bunch of you. Today is our final week in the book of Leviticus. And uh, that's been met with like different responses. There's some people that have cheered and there have been some people that have booed through this series, through this thing. Like uh, some people don't want it to end and some people really want this to end. And today we're going to end it. We're going to do something kind of fun today and, and kind of different. I know what you're thinking. You're like Leviticus and fun. They're like peanut butter and jelly. They always go together, right? Uh, but we really are going to do something fun. And what we're going to do today is actually a little bit unusual. And I think it's going to help maybe some of you that jumped in in the middle of this series or maybe if you've missed a few weeks. Um, because today in about 30 minutes or less, I'm going to give you just a picture of the entire book of Leviticus and what's taking place in it and kind of give you a broad understanding of what's happening throughout this book. And uh, as we do that, as we kind of begin this, um, I want to just explain some things that I think or remind you of some things that I think are important for us to remember about the context in which this is received. It's, it's always important. Sometimes we, we don't have the ability to do this very well, uh, but it's, it's important for us to remember that these books were being received, these words are being received by a specific group of people at a specific time in history. And oftentimes, we sort of forget that. We sort of look back and just see this linear line of books, and we kind of think it was all happening this way. But the reality is that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, this is being delivered to the ancient Hebrew people. Those three books of the Bible, they're being delivered essentially at the same time. In fact, as the Exodus is occurring and they're living in that moment, they're actually engaging with Genesis. They're learning about their history as a people. So they've been slaves, and they've lost a sense of their history. And so now, as they're being liberated from slavery in Egypt, they're learning about where they came from. And then Leviticus is this book that sort of intersects and begins to tell them, well, this is how you're going to start living now. This is how you're going to start moving through your days and, and living your life. So all of this is sort of happening in this one pivotal moment. And there's a couple of phrases that we've used throughout the series that define what's taking place and like the larger story that's being told. In fact, if you've been here, you know I've said this multiple times that what this book is presenting to us primarily, what we're seeing in Leviticus, what we're seeing in Exodus is a God who is unlike other gods. So we have God in heaven who is unlike other gods. And I'm going to draw really poorly today. By the way, whenever you draw God in heaven, he needs to glow or something like this. So we have God in heaven, right? And we have these people. We have a people, and if you've been here, you know there are people that are what? You guys haven't been taking notes, have you? This is horrible. There are people who are unlike other people, right? We have a God who's unlike other gods, and we have a people who are unlike other people. And this is my way of drawing lots of people who are unlike other people. You do this a few times, you get kind of good at it. Um, but I did leave a leg off of somebody in the last service, and that was bad, so oh, almost did it again. So you have people, right? You have a people down on earth that are unlike others. That's what's being presented to us. We have people who are unlike other people. We have a God up here who is unlike other gods. That's how this whole thing begins. And the whole point of the story, the whole idea that we're seeing is that this God 
wants to restore the relationship with these people. He wants to restore things and bring it back to how things used to be. He wants to heal what's broken between them. He wants to relate to them. And so the decision that God makes is that he desires to dwell among the people. And so God does. God begins to dwell among the people. We read about this in the book of Exodus. We read about this in the book of Leviticus, that God comes and he dwells in this thing that we know as a tent. That's a tent, if you can't tell. Um, it's not a Coleman tent, it's just a Hebrew tent, but it's a tabernacle, right? So God comes to dwell among his people. And so this is this brand new idea. This is entirely new. In fact, um, these people, their ideas of God, we have to remember this, that their ideas of God had largely been shaped by the mythologies that were surrounding them during that day. They were heavily influenced by Egyptian mythology. And so there is this understanding of gods that is radically different than the God that we're learning about here. Um, th these Egyptians worshipped gods who were sadistic and they worshipped gods who were demanding and they were fickle. All of these people around them, they were worshipping brutal gods who, who were barbaric in the way they, they seemed to relate to humanity. Which, by the way, explains why God uses the language and uses the processes that he uses to communicate to these people. If you speak a particular language and you're this God who wants to speak to them, then you're going to communicate to them in a language that they understand. So because there's the language of ritual, because there's the language of sacrifice, God uses the language of ritual, he uses the language of sacrifice to show them something that they've never seen. So God is now with these people. We learn about this, right? We learn that God is moving. Every time they move their camp, they move the tent of meeting. There's all of these ceremonies around all of it. So God is dwelling among his people. But that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges. If God is living with his people, if God is dwelling among them, then they're coming face to face with something that we're introduced to in the book of Leviticus. And it's this thing called holiness. And holiness makes the tent glow. In case you were wondering, God's holiness, right? Now, holiness is one word that's used in Leviticus that seemingly in one moment captures God's power and his perfection that is made known by his presence. Like when God enters in the room, there is this thing called holiness. Because he's present, they become immediately aware this God is powerful and this God is perfect. And so they're aware of this. And so as a result of that, there is this, there's this reverence, there's this awe, there's this sense of like we need to respect what's happening in and around the tent because this God is different than other gods and this God is holy. There's an understanding of his purity. There's an understanding of his authority, his rightness. It's knowing how right he is and how powerful he is all at the same time. There is this like holy thing, right? There's holiness, so, so while step one is done and God is with his people, there's a problem. This sense of holiness creates a barrier, right? This reality of holiness creates a barrier between the people and God. They are aware that there's still something blocking them. This is where the book of Leviticus becomes relevant. The book of Leviticus is dealing with how to solve the separation. How do we eliminate the barrier? How can people have relationship with God? That's what's being described. How do we solve this problem? In fact, the beginning of Leviticus opens up and we, we unpack this idea called korban. 
And korban is this idea of doing things so that you can draw near to God. How do these people get closer to God? In fact, Leviticus opens up by saying, if any one of you wishes to draw near to me, then this is what you do. The whole idea is that Leviticus is presenting ways to solve this problem. And interestingly enough, there are three solutions to the problem, three things that Leviticus presents to us. The first solution is the, the solution of ritual. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The second is the solution of priesthood. And the third is the solution of purity. So we have ritual, we have priests, and we have purity. Now this is where this starts to get really interesting. Some of you like to geek out on this stuff, so do I. So if you're the person that geeks out on weird stuff in the Bible like this, get ready to take notes because this is going to be good. When you look at Leviticus, Leviticus is broken down into sections. I've talked about that as we move through the series, that there's a different section. I'll say, hey, we're starting a new section today in Leviticus. There are seven, which is kind of a common biblical number. There's seven sections in the book of Leviticus. They're broken down like this. There's chapters one to seven. There is eight to 10, there's 11 to 15, there's 16 and 17, there's 18 to 20, there's 21 to 22, and there's chapters 23 to 27. 27 is what we're dealing with today. I'm going to talk about that at the end. So that's the sections that are broken into Leviticus. And here's what's fascinating about this. The solutions, ritual, priesthood, and purity, each one of them is presented in the book of Leviticus two distinct times. Ritual is presented in the first seven chapters and in the last four chapters. Priesthood is talked about in the second chapters, 8 through 10, and the second to last section, 21 through 22. Purity is talked about in chapters 11 through 15 and chapters 18 to 20. By the way, doesn't it look a little bit like a menorah? Kind of interesting, isn't it? So we have all of these different sections dealing with all of these different solutions. So let's talk about these for just a moment. Ritual, the first solution is presented in the first section as these sacrifices that individuals are going to make. So you're going to bring these individual sacrifices and it's a way of either saying thank you to God or it's a way of saying to God, like I recognize my brokenness before you and I'm confessing this before you. And so we're presented with these options, these opportunities for people to make things good with God. Then at the end of the book, instead of it being individual sacrifices or individual individual things you're doing, at the end of the book, the ritual section, chapters 23 through 27, deal with collective things that you do as a group. It deals with festivals. It deals with who you are as a collective group of people. And so you have two different places where God says, here are the rituals that you're going to engage in to get rid of this barrier for me. The second solution is the solution of priesthood. That priesthood start, starts, that section starts in the first section by presenting the ordination of Aaron. If you remember and you were here several weeks back, you know, that's the week when Aaron gets brought out essentially in nothing but a speedo and Moses dresses him in front of the congregation in this beautiful outfit, this beautiful gown and then they splatter blood and ashes all over him and it was this crazy moment and God says there are priests and priests serve a specific function for you and they tell you like they'll, they'll be interceding for you on your behalf with me and so he presents the idea of the priest and then again later in chapters 21 through 22 he talks about the priests again and he talks about the life that the priests are supposed to live because they are in this unique role there is a purity 
that the priests should have. There is a way they should move through their days. There is a thing that should be different about them because priests, if they're interceding the way it's presented in the first half of the solution, they should live as they're being presented in the second half of solution. So we have ritual is one way to get through this. We have priesthood. That's another way to get through this. And then we have the purity of the people. The purity of the people was a really interesting section. Um, in the first solution, or first part section of the third solution, this purity section, we learned about all the skin disorders. We learned about all these weird, gross things and bodily discharges and all of this. And we scratched our head and we were like, what does all of this mean? And basically what we were learning was the difference between temeh and tehor, these Hebrew words for clean and unclean or pure and non-pure. That's what we were learning about. And, and admittedly, as, as strange as this section was, what we were really seeing is that God was again distinguishing himself from the pantheon of gods that these people worshipped. Um, for, for those gods, people never knew where they stood. They always were insecure. They always thought if, if there was a blemish, if there was a rash, if there was something strange that was happening, well, then the gods were punishing me. And there was all of this confusion around this. So what we see God doing in this section is establishing a way of people knowing where they could stand with him or knowing where they stood with him so they didn't live in total insecurity. So again, people who are unlike other people are not people who live insecurely. They're people who live confidently with God, securely in their relationship with God. Also, by the way, in this section, we saw in his brilliance that he, he gives these people ideas on how to live healthier lives, ideas that thousands of years later, modern science would give evidence to them being incredibly accurate and helpful for humanity. So he does this, and God shows them, I am always about life. I'm never about death. That's what those sections are about. The second section of the third solution is where they learn about kind of collective morality. This is where they learn about social justice. This is where they learn about healthy human sexuality. This is where they learn about, uh, about how they handle legal disputes, how you handle arguments with your neighbor, how you handle uh, when, some, when an injustice has happened and you need to solve a problem. It's basically the legal proceedings for the people of Israel. That's where it gets presented is in chapters 18 through 20. So we have three solutions, ritual, priesthood, and purity, this is how you deal with the barrier so that you can corban with God. Now, you might have noticed something. There's one bubble that isn't connected to any of these, and it happens to be the one right in the middle. And when you read Leviticus, it seems a bit out of place. Like we've talked about sacrifices and rituals and all these different things, and then suddenly we come back to it for this thing called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the centerpiece of the entire story that's being told here. Everything that's being described, it's right in the middle. And, and if, you, if you weren't here for this, let me just quickly remind you or explain to you that, that the, the Day of Atonement was a very important thing. Again, I mentioned that the, the people at this time, they had total insecurity about where they stood with God. And they would even more so know about this barrier because of just being human. In fact, at this point, the nation of Israel is fairly large. We're talking about a large group of people. And when you get a bunch of lar or large group of people together, there's mischief that happens, right? I mean, go to any state college, right? I mean, go to a college campus and what do you see? You see mischief. Get a large group of people together, unfettered, and they're going to make mistakes and do things. They're going to be aware of those kinds of things. So the people of Israel, they're together, and they're aware of their brokenness. They're aware because they've watched each other. They've seen themselves. They know 
man, we might be doing all these things, but we still have a deep sense that there's this barrier between us and God. And so God gives them the Day of Atonement where he takes these two goats that are two beautiful pictures of what, what he's saying to them. He's saying, I want you to know where you stand with me. And so they take one goat, and because, again, it's barbaric, but it was the language of the day, they kill the one goat. In fact, in chapter 17 is where they say the life is in the blood. And so he's describing that that blood, that goat's being held accountable for their brokenness. So he kills the one goat. And then the other goat, which is called the scapegoat, maybe you've been called a scapegoat before, maybe you are a scapegoat, but the scapegoat is the one that they put the hands on the head of and they confess the sins of all of the congregation and then that goat is sent into the wilderness. And God does this to them to say, I want you to have a physical picture every single year, once a year. I want you to know where you stand with me. I want you to know that your sins have been forgiven, the debt has been paid, and I have forgotten about them. I have sent them away. It's nothing. They've been eradicated. And so these two goats represent two pictures or two things that God is saying to the people, and that is, we are good. We're good. No need to live insecurely. No need to live like these other people. Don't relate to me the way other people relate to their gods. That's what he's saying. And notice where it sits in the whole story. This definitive point is right in the middle of it. It's right in the center. So I need you to understand that, that Leviticus was revolutionary in its day. And it pulled these people closer to God and closer to the life that he had created them for. That's what it was doing. But as we've seen throughout the book of Leviticus, there's sort of the first edition that we read about here, and then there's the second edition, right? There's the thing that happened in the moment, and then there's the thing that this thing is pointing to. Over and over again, we saw that all of this is pointing to something else. And once again, this is pointing to something else. So let me go back to this. Go back to the tent. Throughout the Bible, the word tent is synonymous with the words for the human body. In fact, in the New Testament, over and over again, and in the Old Testament, the human body is referred to as a tent. You are a tent. Believe it or not, you are a tent. That's what the Bible is saying. So, God comes down in a tent in Leviticus. What is that pointing to? I don't want to lose my pen. Jesus... God comes in the form of a body. He comes in the form of a tent, right? So the whole idea of God being in a tent and then the language of tent being used over and over again to describe the body, all of it is foreshadowing the reality that God would come in a tent. God would come with flesh and bones. It points to the person of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that everything is solved, right? There's still a problem. We're still not holy and God still is, right? So what needs to happen? What does Leviticus show us? Well, there needs to be three solutions in order to solve this. So, there's a ritual that takes place. There's a sacrifice that gets made. And the first one is solved. If you read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it refers to Jesus as the high priest. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. We needed somebody to intercede for us. Somebody who lived a different kind of life and lived a different way that would intercede with God for us. And so Jesus in that moment resolves the priesthood. And then there's this idea of purity, but we need to be pure. There's this interesting Greek word. It's the word hagios. 
It's used throughout the New Testament. The New Testament writers, the apostles, the early church leaders, they talked about how Jesus had made us hagios. The word hagios is translated into English as holy. Jesus made us holy. And I'm going to get back to this in just a minute, but he solves the issue of purity. So in one move, God through Jesus answers the ritual gives us a priest, and resolves the issue of purity. Which, by the way, a few years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the temple, uh, which, was, which was this beautiful, amazing place where all of this stuff happened, the temple was torn down and rendered obsolete. It has never been rebuilt. These practices have not been practiced. There have been no sacrifices there. Since AD 70, this has not happened. Why? Because all of this was pointing to Jesus. And when Jesus did this, he solved all of that. He resolved all of that. He re rendered all of that obsolete. So, Jesus makes us holy. We're going to come back to that idea. Now, this first half seems to be indicating, like we look at this, it seems to be talking about, this first section here, seems to be talking about our life before Jesus. And the second section seems to be talking about our life after Jesus. Like we have this encounter with the cross, and then we have these other things that then become true of us. So we have two different sections that are taking place here. When we think about how this happens in our life, there's a shift, right? When you encounter Jesus... There's an orientation that shifts in people's lives. You now see things differently. You are shaped by now knowing this God. He shapes your life as a result of this. And if you look at the content of what they're now asked to do or who they're invited to be, you see that we now bring justice. We bring peace. We bring wholeness. There's something that happens with the life of a person who's experienced this progression. So there's this process that seems to be being described. So all of that brings us to chapter 27, the final chapter. And chapter 27 is kind of interesting because it looks like an addendum to the entire book. In fact, I know some of you, you've probably read Leviticus every day through this series the last 22 weeks. I, yeah, I knew it. Not one of you did that. But if you read it, you get to the end of chapter 26 and it looks like the whole book comes to an end. And then you turn the page, you're like, oh no, there's more. Wait, there's more, right? You turn the page and there's one more chapter and it's chapter 27 and chapter 27 is about what people should do when they want to be generous towards God. And this is where this whole thing gets really, really fascinating. Um, first of all, right there is a very beautiful idea. God gives to us. God is generous towards us. And then something happens to us. Something happens in us. Something reforms us, redeems us. And then he invites us to enter into this relationship by participating in similar generosity with him. So not like these sacrifices, not like I'm giving to God so that I somehow have access to you. What he's saying is, this is going to be an expression of love. You are going to want to give gifts to me. And so he begins this explanation of how we become generous towards God. This is a very natural thing for humans, by the way. We like to give gifts to those that we love and those that we respect. Uh, last week, um, Sherry and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary last week. Yeah, oh, thank you. Um, yeah, we, uh, we looked at each other, we're like, we made it, now what? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but we, were, we, we were hanging out and we, we bought each other gifts, and we don't buy gifts for each other a lot, but we do occasionally for special occasions. And, uh, and it was so great because I had picked something that was like, I was so excited about it. And then like three days before we were going to give gifts, she starts alluding to the gift 
that I got her. And I was like, I might have purchased the perfect thing. And so at that moment, I was like, can we just do gifts now? Can I just tell you now? Can I, can I, she's like, no, we need to wait. And I was like, okay, okay. And so then a few days later, we exchanged gifts and it's our silver anniversary. And so um, the silver thing that I gave her was a new set of golf clubs. Yes. Yeah. And interestingly enough, being our silver anniversary, she bought me new kitchen knives. And there was sort of a moment we looked at each other and thought, oh, how things have changed in 25 years. Like, I'm excited about cooking in the kitchen and you're excited about golf. And it's this total, like, role reversal thing. It's really hilarious. But, but we just gave gifts, right? It was so exciting to just see each other light up about these really cool things that we'd done for each other. So, so chapter 27 is like God saying, listen, I believe in you. And, and, and I believe in this. I believe in what we're about to do here together. And I believe that you, with, with all of your brokenness, your eyes are going to be opened up and your lives are going to be changed changed and you're going to feel a particular way about me and you're going to want to give back to me. And so chapter 27 says, this is how you give back to me. But there's a mind-blowing concept that's embedded in this. The idea is being planted that when you give back to God, his tent will expand. And in a very practical first edition level, that's exactly what took place. The, the Hebrew people, they poured all of this money and all of this energy and all of this effort into the tent, which eventually became the temple, which became one of the known wonders of the world. Solomon's temple was so valuable that other nations, even though they feared the nation of Israel because clearly God was with them, they wished to conquer them to literally steal all of the money that was in the temple. They'd spent so much money building the temple. They'd invested so much because the idea was the more beautiful beautiful this is, the larger it is, the more impressive it is, the more these other nations will be aware of God's presence in this place. So in a way, what God is saying is this, when you get this, when you start to enter into this relationship of mutual generosity, he says, my presence expands to new places. When you give back to me from what you have, my presence, my tent expands and it covers new ground. So what does that mean in the second edition of all of this? What does it mean in round two of this? What does it mean to us today? Well, check this out. The tent is associated with what? Holiness, right? And Jesus has made us holy. So the picture that's being painted in the second half is that where you and I go, where you and I live, because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit of God dwells in us, we expand the footprint of God's kingdom. When you and I begin to give of our life back to God, when you and I say, I'm going to give my energy, my time, my life, my career, uh, that I'm going to live for God, we might use that sort of language. When we do that, then the places where we go, the places where we play and the places we eat and the places that we work, the places that we hang out, all of those places become influenced by the kingdom of God because we are tents that are carrying the Holy Spirit to this place. So the more I give of my life, the more I let God reach into the, the different categories of my life, the more the kingdom of God God expands into those places. Are you with me in this? This last week, I heard about a book that's coming out. It's called Four-Fifths a Bear. It's going to come out in July. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a guy, I think he works for National Geographic, and he's writing about uh, how our DNA, we are 80% the same DNA as a bear. 
human beings. He also highlights that we're 50% the same DNA as salmon, 40% the same as most common insects, and that we share 28% of our DNA with wine grapes. Is that encouraging or what, right? And I'm kind of interested in it because he's talking about our lack of connection with the, the created world and nature. And I'm always just sort of looking at what our culture is saying about these things. But it got me thinking about just what that could be presenting. Could it be presenting the idea that, well, because we're 80% a bear, aren't we just another creature? Aren't we just another living organism? Aren't we just another animal that's wandering the face of this earth? Well, everything about this tells me that there's more than just 20% different between me and a bear. Are you with me on this? This tells me that if I am the tent of God, if I am the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, then I, everywhere I go, I am influencing on behalf of the kingdom of God, which now some of the things that Jesus said to his disciples, they make so much sense. Like when he said the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is before you, the kingdom of God is now, he was saying that to them because now wherever they went, the kingdom of God was there because they brought the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was telling them. Which by the way, when I look at this and I think about the God of the universe weaving this into this ancient text and us being able to look at this in 2021, there's a part of me that goes, how could I give my life to anyone other than this brilliant, beautiful God? Are you with me on this? Like when Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, it seems like a really easy thing to do when I see it through this lens. And then interestingly enough, when I do give him my heart and I love him with all of my mind and when I love him with all of my soul and all of my strength, Interestingly enough, I'm compelled to love him in that way, but when I do, his influence and his kingdom grows. It's this beautiful thing that was given to us thousands of years ago, pointing to Jesus and inviting us into a new way of being, a new way of living in the place where we find ourselves. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's also amazing that you guys stuck with me for like, what, 22 weeks of Leviticus? You came back week after week, and it's amazing, so thank you so much. Would you guys stand with me? In just a moment, I'm, I'm going to offer the, the benediction um, so you can prepare for that. Um, next week, we're going to start a brand new series. Uh, it's a four-week series called Hearing God in the Wilderness. And uh, my good friend, Bo Stern Brady, her and I are going to be co-teaching this series. Um, she's going to do the first week. I'm going to do the two middle weeks. She's going to do the last week. And uh, I think it's going to be a really good series just talking about how do you and I, as people who live in a wilderness, how do we, and we've talked about that in this series, we're in the wilderness years, how do we hear from God? How do you actually hear God? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is that experience like for us to, to hear from God? So that's, um, that's next week. Also next week, we've got a group of high school students that are going to Alaska on a mission trip. And so we're going to pray for them next week and just kind of lay hands on them and send them. I think it's a really cool thing when students jump into serving God in those ways. So um, next week's going to be a really great week. But now let me offer this to you. If you're willing to open your hands to receive this, uh, I offer this benediction to you. May you be men and women who know the God who is unlike other gods. And may you take the influence, the kingdom of that God into the places where you work and learn and laugh and eat and drink and play. May you expand the tent that God has given you to expand in the places 
he's placed you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you guys next week. See you later.